Welcome to episode 90 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be chatting about skiing in Turkey. Uh, we would have Olympian Millie Knight uh, joining us. Uh, she is about to appear in the Paralympics in Beijing, but uh, guess what? She's busy at the moment. So I pre-recorded an interview with her, but we're going to be talking about the Paralympics and the Olympics, taking the train to Austria and how to choose your rental ski boots. Uh, firstly, I'd like to start off by thanking Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, I'm very excited because I'm heading out to uh, Andermatt uh, next week and also Alec Arena, which I've never been to uh, before. So very excited about that. Listener, I recommend you go to Switzerland as well. But there are there are several ways you can support the ski podcast apart from going to Switzerland. That is, if you go to uh, Buy Me A Coffee, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ski podcast. You can give us a review anywhere you want. Uh, I've noticed recently you can now give us a review on Spotify, but also Apple Podcasts, or there's still a chance to vote for us in the Sports Podcast Awards, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes about that. Now, my name's Ian Martin. We have mentioned Millie Knight's busy out in Beijing, uh, which means today I'm joined live by regular guest, Mike Richards. Hi, Mike. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you, Ian. Great to be back. Yeah, last time I saw you was at the uh, Birmingham Ski Show, where we were on the uh, uh, the stage there with Simon Burgess talking about skiing around in the UK. I know you ski in Wales, and we've talked about that uh, a lot before. Have you skied in the UK this winter? I have. It's been a fairly poor winter in comparison with last year where uh, I got 23 in and Chris got 40 in, my ski partner. I'm up to three and he's up to nine this year, but uh, beggars can't be choosers. But possibly that's because you've been allowed to go overseas, which was limited last year. So that's still good. I'm also joined today by our regulars, Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm good. Thanks. And uh, in the bottom right of my screen, I've got Al Morgan from SkeekerInfo.com. Hi, Al. How are you? I am good, thank you, Ian. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. As I mentioned, I'm going out to the Alps uh, next week. Quite excited uh, about that. I'm hoping there's going to be a little bit of snow coming before then. The temperatures look uh, fairly cold. I'm pretty confident that neither Katie or Al have been uh, to the snow since we last spoke. So, Mike, tell me, when did you last ski? Well, I was very fortunate to ski last Thursday in the Brecon Beacons. What was um, the snow like there then? Not too bad. Decent covering. Uh, got halfway home. So, you know, a couple of hundred metres worth of vertical, uh, about a kilometre's worth of skiing. Fairly mellow grass uh, meadow skipping, but uh, a lovely evening out. Nice cool. I, you know, I, I love that. You know, we've been doing lots of features uh, on the podcast recently about skiing in the UK, whether it's in Northumbria or in Scotland or in your case, Wales. And listen, if you're interested uh, in skiing in Wales more, I'll put a link in the show notes. We had a long chat with Mike about it uh, before. Uh, let's move on to talking about travel. We mentioned that uh, Mike's been able to uh, go overseas. That wasn't possible last year. It seems to be getting easier and easier. Let's uh, talk to Katie in the Battleface travel update. Great. Okay. Well, we're here for the Battleface travel update with Katie Crow. Now, I have to be honest with you, we actually recorded this first time around yesterday. And then typically, as soon as we'd recorded, France announced that they were going to be changing their rules. So here we are again, one day later. <laughs> How are you going, Katie? Yeah, that's right. As typically, uh, things change so fast in the travel world. Um, we are re-recording this. Well, it's a huge relief for uh, tourists planning to visit France in the coming months because yesterday the Prime Minister Jean Castex announced that the French vaccine pass will no longer be necessary in many venues across France from the 14th of March onwards. 
The best thing about that really is you don't have to worry about having the app and printing out the app and having your QR code and all of that because non-vaccinated travellers still are not able to go to France. You need to have a compelling uh, reason. It's only if you're double vaccinated you can travel anyway. So by definition, if you were in a ski resort, you would have been double vaccinated. But it just means that you don't have to show that pass anymore to go into a restaurant, to go onto the lifts. And, you know, mask wearing has been reduced uh, significantly as well. And I think from tomorrow, there are going to be some changes in Austria in that respect as well. That's right. Yeah. From tomorrow, March the 5th, all COVID protection measures will be lifted, except for mandatory masks, as you say, on public transport and in essential shops like supermarkets and post office and banks, etc., so again, that's really welcome news, means that um, skiing in March is going to be easier in um, in Austria. Yeah, so overall, I mean, I think if you're fully vaccinated, uh, there has been an announcement, I think, that the EU are planning to, you know, try and keep the rules the same in every country, so that all British travellers who are fully vaccinated don't need to have any tests to go into EU countries. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's worth pointing out at this stage, that on the battle phase website there's a really good travel tool where you can kind of check the latest information the whole time i was actually looking at it earlier this morning uh, just to check but you just want to give us a, a, an insight into that katie yeah that's right um the battle phase travel hub uh will help you make decisions um with regards to your travel plans um, and it looks at the trip origin destination travel dates nationality and current restrictions in place in your destination country so it really does provide up-to-the-minute information for travellers and it's a really useful tool. So I'd recommend everybody who's planning on a trip to go onto the Travel Hub and um, check out the requirements. Yeah, well, I have to be honest, I, I had looked at it a while ago. I hadn't looked at it you know, more recently. I looked at it, yeah, it's very efficient, very easy to uh, change it around and see what tests or not are required and what you need to be able to get into the country. And it's also worth probably pointing out at this point that fully, the definition of fully vaccinated does vary from country to country because in terms of boosters, uh, I think, uh, you know, in France, uh, for entry into the country, you need to, need to have had your booster within nine months, 270 days. And I think that's the same for Austria as well. That's right. Yeah, I'd recommend you really do your research and check out the country requirements prior to travel and also check out the FCGO travel advice as well, because um, that advice remains under constant review and can change at any time, depending on the destination. So definitely worth checking prior to any trip. Yeah, exactly. And I believe there's also uh, talk that the passenger locator form coming back in the UK may be dropped shortly as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, nothing official has been announced yet, but I understand that Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has been pushing for, for this form to be scrapped for some time now, really to help the travel industry get back on its feet. And there are definitely rumours that this change will be in place before families head out for their Easter holidays. I personally don't find that so difficult. I fill it out so many times now. I've got like a, a, an account and a lot of the uh, fields are free filled. But when you end up in a queue coming into the UK or crossing a border, inevitably there's a whole bunch of people in front of you who haven't completed the form and it just delays everything. It would just be much quicker if they didn't need to check that, didn't need to look at it. And hopefully that will uh, happen as well. Yeah, that, that's the last remaining requirement for vaccinated people. So hopefully it'll be scrapped soon. Yeah. 
Well, that's great, Katie. So if uh, listeners are looking to get uh, insurance for their ski holiday, they can go to uh, battleface.com and they can obviously check the latest uh, situation on the travel tool on the website as well. I know it's so nice after all of the many episodes we've had discussing, you know, how things have got more difficult to be talking about how they've got easier again. That's, that's brilliant, Katie. Thanks very much for rejoining me again today. You're welcome. Great to speak with you, Ian. So obviously people are traveling overseas at the moment. There's lots of people in the Alps. Some of my clients are completely sold out for uh, March, which is uh, great news for the industry as a whole. And we have a few snow reports uh, from some of our regular contributors. So let's have a listen to those now. Hi, Ian. Hi, listeners. Hi, everybody. It's Andy from Kaluma Travel over in St. Anton and Arlberg in the Austrian Alps. The last couple of weeks um, have been quite eventful weather-wise. We've had huge snowstorms. Um, I think on the back of Storm Eunice um, from the UK, um, we received a pretty wild weather front where we had outright snowstorms for about 72 hours. It was quite quite epic. Um, but after those snowstorms, um, it left a lot of snow um, and a lot of avalanche risk, a lot of danger, and it, and it warmed up pretty quickly. So we, we literally went from sort of like minus 13, 14, 15 on the, on the mountains, heavy snowfalls at night time, um, to the next day, being sort of like plus 10, um, it really changed quite dramatically and, and put the avalanche risk up quite high. Um, and you may have seen in, in, in the news, um, there were uh, a few tragic avalanches um, a couple of weeks ago with a group of Swedish skiers uh, and a local guide, sadly, um, not faring too well in the avalanche situation. Um, so alert was quite high, um, but that's changed quite rapidly again. Um, the last sort of like week has been beautiful weather. Um, clear blue skies, crisp snow, uh, waking up in the morning to like beautifully broom peace. Um, it really has been quite quite nice. The, the avalanche danger has gone right back down to one in the Tyrol region. Um, so it's not um, particularly dangerous off the piste at all. Um, but saying that, the snow probably off the piste isn't that good to be skiing off piste at the moment. Um, yeah, it has warmed up quite quite a lot, as I said. But peace skiing is superb um, and getting towards the sort of like Easter season now um, when, when the, the snow should be nice, the weather should be good, the sun should be shining, perfect for big bottles of rosé on a sun terrace, um, good morning skiing, long lunches and a, and, and a bit of sunbathing ahead. Um, resort wise it's been pretty busy, um, it's certainly been busy for Kaluma in resort, um, the, the bookings this season have um, far outweighed our expectations which has been really really good. Um, everyone's having a great time. I heard an interesting fact from the tourist office the other day in St Anton um, that British guests are actually 53% down um, on previous years. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, the Bre- has to do with Brexit and probably, uh, no doubt, the pandemic as well. Um, but hoping for next season um, we'll be able to, to push that number of UK visitors back up again um, to, to the normal levels. Um, British guests used to make about 27 or 28% of St Anton's tourism trade, um, which was the highest highest percentage, higher than the Germans, higher than the Swiss. Um, but say, sadly, this season it hasn't hasn't been too good for the for, for the Brit market. But saying that, um, it has been really good for the, the Scandinavians, the Dutch, the um, the the Germans. Um, they've been sort of coming in force, and resort has been busy. Certainly, the last the last week or so, the fashing week, the carnival week um, over in Austria um, has seen lots of people out and about skiing. Um, all's good, looking forward to Easter, um, looking forward to, uh, to more snow on the way, hopefully next week, um, once this warm front's move, move through, um, top up the snow, looking for a good, good end to the season. Hope everyone's well, and uh, very much hope to see everyone on the snow. Cheers.
Hello Ian, it's Dave Burrows here from Snow Pro Ski School. Uh, I am here in sunny Morjan and I'm here with my daughter Zoe, age five. How are you? Good. You're good? Now, Ian needs to know what the snow is like. Is the snow good? You can't nod. You have to say, is it good? Yes. It's good? What is the snow like today? Slippy and sludgy. Slippy and in some places it's a bit it's a bit soft, isn't it? It's a bit sugary. But that's only the places where the sun is on it. What about on the other side where it's a bit shady? Is the snow grippy? Grippy. Grippy, alright. And cool. bumpy. And what's the weather like today? Good. What 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 in what way is it good? Sunny and blue skies. Sunny and blue skies, cool. So Ian, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, time of year here. We have had high pressure here for about, must be going on for about two weeks now. Um, and every night it freezes. So we're not sort of losing snow. If anything, like the snow is just getting better and better. And so um, peace in the whole of the Port de Soleil, Villar, saint serge everywhere I've been recently are in immaculate condition. I went to Verbier the other day, same thing. Um, snow is kind of almost January like it's ideal skiing conditions it's really busy up here and the people uh, people love it so um, we're enjoying having a good time we're just going off for lunch now aren't we what are you going to have for lunch spaghetti spaghetti are you sure you don't want not nuggets today no and what happened to your biscuit earlier what happened to your biscuit it fell over it fell off the lift it's a shame, isn't it? Let's go find another one. All right, so from Sunny Morjan, Ian, uh, I hope you and all the listeners are doing well, really well. And, um, yeah, get yourself out here, man. It's amazing. See you soon. Bye. Hi, Ian. Keith Webb here giving you a, a snow report from the Caprun ZLMZ area. Well, guys, the, the snow has been really good up on the glacier. It's, um, it's powder snow, uh, compacted now since we haven't had any uh, fresh falls for um, five or six days now. Um, but it's still in great condition. The temperatures are always in the sort of minus seven to minus 16 range. I mean, really, really cool up there if you're, um, if you're skiing. Um, the sun has been out, so it's actually been pretty stunning up there most of the time. Um, in the wider area, uh, is LMZ. It's uh, skiable down into the village, although in the afternoon it gets quite um, heavy. Um, because it's so cold, it's not uh, sort of slushy, but it, you know, it's this um, granular sugar that that just breaks up with you skiing on it so it becomes quite heavy and if the temperatures rise it will get quite soft but um, at the moment the temperature seems to be holding and um, for the arrivals on the 5th of March which is in a couple of days um, I think you're in for a fabulous weekend if you're coming to this area. Um, the skiing from the kits down onto into Caprone from the Maiskogel is good at the top. Again, it's a little bit sort of heavy with this sugary snow down into the bottom. And as I said, if the temperature rises, it will get a bit slushy. But the cover is good and it will last um, for quite a while. Certainly next week, there's no sort of adverse weather in the forecast. So um, it's looking good for conditions through the rest of March. Um, so if you're on this way, heading this way, fantastic. 
So thanks to uh, Andy, uh, Dave and Keith for those snow reports. And I've just got to say to uh, Dave Burrows, I think he normally listens to the podcast. That is probably my favourite snow report of all time. Thanks very much to you and your daughter. So those are more regular kind of resorts that most people have probably uh, may have come across or certainly would have heard of. Not many people, I imagine, will have considered going skiing in Turkey. Uh, Mike, it's great to have you uh, back on the show. You are one of the most widely travelled skiers uh, I've ever met. Uh, we've talked before about skiing in uh, in Georgia as well as Wales. Tell us about Turkey. When were you out there? Um, I was out there from the 3rd to the 13th of January. Uh, I was invited by Johnny Richards, who's no relation, who's editor at large <laughs> for uh, Fall Line Skiing magazine. Um, acting a little bit of taking photographs, being the model, uh, because it's a skiing magazine, he snowboards. So any photographs that we may have had of action kind of stuff, then he, he wouldn't have been uh, suitable as the model for that. So that was a little bit different for me and may, may see myself in the magazine down the line. So, so Mike, you're telling us that actually we've got a ski model on the uh, show as well as an experienced traveller. <laughs> well, I'll let you be the judge of that if it ever makes print. <laughs> Excellent. So you went out there in mid-January. Um, give us an idea of your itinerary. How did it go? Well, one of the reasons um, Johnny was invited by um, Ovid Mountain, which is a, a backcountry centre that's in the Far East in the Anatolia region uh, that comes off the Black Sea. Um, and also by um, a gentleman called Erdem, which, who has a company called Ski Turkish, who's trying to develop the whole uh, Turkish uh, ski scene for the overseas market. They've had a and domestic scene for a very long time. They've had quite a lot of um, neighbouring countries visit that area, depending on the snow conditions. Some, for example, if Georgia's getting the snow and Turkey's not, then people will go to Georgia and vice versa. So they've had a very strong and a very long um, ski scene in Turkey, but they're actively looking to try and get that uh, Western European market to come in. So we were invited to to do a piece for four-line skiing, to try and promote that and and we're really looking at in terms of over at the backcountry uh, side of things is that right Ovid was was purely backcountry it's um snowcat um and snowmobile accessed ski touring and skiing and then we we spent a few days there initially and then we went then to the resort areas when you say cat assisted ski touring you actually ski touring as well or are you just getting your lift uphill the whole time it's a combination of everything. They're a very new operation and they're starting to find um, their routes and their, their trails. They're building roads um, and so it goes on. And then depending on uh, the snowfall, and they're in a very fortunate position where that first storm comes off the Black Sea, picks up the moisture and dumps it on the mountains that surround the valley. Um, if they get a huge load of snow, then they can't put a cat up anyway, whereas they could ski tour or they could uh, put a, um, a snowmobile up. So they're looking to cover all bases uh, to try and make sure that everybody gets out every day. Okay, and what, what sort of altitudes are we talking about here then for the lodge and how high you might go up to? So the lodge is at 2,640 metres and then the skiing goes up to 3,800, although we only went around about the 3,400, 3,500 mark because of early season conditions. So a good 1,000 metres vertigo. 
Yeah, and that's pretty uh, high. I mean, to put that in context uh, for listeners, the highest ski resort in Europe is 2,300 metres at Val Torrens. So you're staying overnight at 2,600. Now, I've slept that high, you know, quite a few times in my life overall. But did you find it all right sleeping at that altitude? Um, just had to be aware of it. I mean, if you'd never been to those kind of heights before, then it could have caught you out. But if you know you've, you've, you're going to that sort of area, then you need to keep hydrated um, and not really push yourself those first couple of days. Right. Okay. And what were the uh, conditions like? What's the terrain like there? We were very, very lucky. Um, the couple of days prior to to our arrival, it had a good snowfall. Then there was a break. And then when we arrived um, in the afternoon, it just started chucking it down. So we had about 40 to 50 centimetres uh, overnight on our first night. So we didn't think we were going to get out that first morning. Uh, the guides were very confident, um, but we got out before breakfast. The sun rises in that area. We are spectacular. The um, It's a valley system. The guys that run over it, uh, Kasha and Russian, they own the valley. The families have, it's been in the family for, for <laughs> right. many, many generations. Um, so they own the valley. And in the summertime, the road links right through the valley system. And at wintertime, then the, the road is closed. So to even access it, we had to come in eight kilometers in a snow cart just to get to the lodge that that's great although it reminds me a little bit of the shining which makes me slightly uh, uh wary of it <laughs> uh thankfully there was a lot of people there otherwise it could have felt like that but it's um these guys are up there for the whole winter so they've got a really really sophisticated uh set up there brand new lodge is only two years old uh a full team of chefs a lovely bar area um and it's a really plush the the everything is is brand new okay and what nationality were the other guests who were there then at the time we were there there were a couple of people in from uh istanbul um and a couple of russians who were living in istanbul and working who'd been there you know for donkey's years that's where they'd made their home on your first day there you got 40 to 50 centimeters of uh of fresh snow is that right yeah, it was brilliant. So we set off early, just uh, myself, Johnny, and then uh, Tato, who was our guide. The three of us went out before the other guests that were in the lodge, and we ski toured only. So we went straight from the lodge, put our skins on. Uh, Johnny was on snowshoes. And then we went up about five or 600 meters vertical uh, to one of the staging areas where um, they've got their setup. And then we clicked in, and then it was... It started knee, then it went to mid mid thigh, and then it was over the head. So we were finding pockets of fantastic snow in no wind and um, and great sunshine. So it was it was a perfect morning right back for breakfast. <laughs> I can't tell you how jealous I am listening to that. Uh, that sounds just uh, like amazing, like the perfect uh, the perfect day skiing. And, and uh, the other days were kind of similar in terms of access. I think you said it snowed quite heavily while you were there. Yeah, so it, it snowed that first night. Then after that, we had sunshine the whole time. So it was a combination of uh, that first morning, we just started ski touring. And then by the afternoon, they'd already put the first track in for the snowmobile. So then we would sit on the snowmobile. They had racks on the side of the snowmobile to put the equipment in. The driver would take you to a certain point, maybe five, 600 vertical meters above. And then you could either do laps from there or you could ski tour above that. And then each day, the distance that they could travel would be further and further. Okay, well, that that sounds great. I'm going to uh, put some links into the show notes for the uh, the Ovid Mountain Lodge. I think after that, you went on to a more traditional uh, resort. I did a little Google of it. Said so it had 43 kilometers a piece and 12 uh, lifts. How was that second part of your trip? 
That was fascinating because you know you, you I've been fortunate to go to places like Macedonia, Kosovo, um, Montenegro, and Georgia, and, and everyone assumes that because you're going to the eastern part of Europe, that everything's going to be second rate, and that's it's far from the truth. You know, we got there and it was a it's a fully developed resort. Um, in terms of access, it was phenomenal. Erzurum is the uh, is the city. Um, and the airport was only about a half an hour transfer from the airport, you know, from landing to get to your accommodation on mountain. And then they had one gondola that took you uh, practically to the top of the of the system. There was one more chair above that, and then a number of other chairs um, to that height that sort of spread people around. And what sort of altitudes were we talking about uh, there? This is Palandokan, is that right? Yeah, Palandokan. So Palandokan. we were. Yeah, I know it's all these names where they ever stress the uh, the vowels and the the the, the consonants. Yeah. Um, so we were at two thousand two hundred meters as the base. Yeah, and the the top of the the summit of the mountain is three thousand two hundred, so a thousand meters vertical, and it's part of what they call the Azure three thousand two hundred. So we were in Palandakin, and there's a nearby resort called Kanakli, which we couldn't get to because the weather had um, had, had closed the lifts for the couple of days we were there, but. If you're based there, then you've got the choice of two resorts within a, a 15, 20 minute taxi ride. Cool. And one of the upsides of this is, uh, you know, the prices. Uh, uh, you sent me a note earlier. I think we're talking about six or seven pounds for a lift ticket for the day. It was crazy. It was six pounds per day. And that included the night skiing. You could have it cheaper if you uh, didn't want to do night skiing. But the, the, <laughs> the day we arrived, because we'd had the transfer done from Ovid, we got there at lunchtime, had a quick lunch. Then we went out and skied the afternoon and then went through then to the early part of the evening, watched the sun go down over the mountains, see the lights come on. Very extensive night skiing operation. Um, so one of those places, I mean, I always find you go to these fantastic gateway um, airports when you go skiing and you never get a chance to see the city, unfortunately. You know, if you go, unless you're in Innsbruck, for example, that's one of the few ones you can do. So it was great that we knew that we could go to Erzurum, for example, in the morning if the sun was out, although the conditions weren't good, have a little look around the city, see the minarets, go to the mosques, go to the castle, the bazaars, those kinds of things, knowing that we could come back then and have a full afternoon and through to the evening um, of skiing. So it's, it's a great combination in those things then. Great. And I mean, I think to me that is... You know, the sort of person who's listening to this right now thinking, oh, that sounds of interest is not the sort of person who wants to, I guess, you know, ski uh, amazingly fast lifts on huge uh, uh, ski areas. There's someone who wants to get a little bit more out of the experience and uh, incorporate some of that cultural experience at the same time. And just out of interest, how did you find your Turkish hosts? Brilliant. Could not have been friendlier. Um, they're in a situation which I found in lots of Eastern uh, countries where why are you here? Not in a nasty way. It's you've got great mountains closer to you. Why are you making the effort to come all this way? And when you explain to them that they've got the great snow conditions, they've got tremendous value for money, um, and it's something a little bit different. You know, they're they're very proud of of their country, and they're very proud to show you what what's on on store. And we were we we went to Palandakin and we talked to people on chairlifts, and they would show us a or oh, come with me. We'll show you around the corner, kind of thing here. Um, and Palandakin is fairly easy to work out. It's a, it's a big monolith of, of uh, 360 degrees worth of skiing, uh, all above tree line pr primarily. But we went for a day trip to another resort called Sarakamish, which was very much um, very similar to my experiences on Hokkaido, where the tree line goes to the top of the mountain. 
runs a cut within the trees and then there's lots of tree skiing in but this is conifer uh, forests uh, and there you know you would you'd be easy to get in but obviously getting out is knowing when you how far you can ski down these runs before you need to to pull out to get back to the lifts and we were speaking with people on the chairs people who'd come in from iran people who'd come in from poland people who uh, turkish would come in from the western part of turkey uh, near istanbul and they were more than happy to show us their favorite parts of the mountain that's great now we were talking in the green room earlier before we started recording and you mentioned that uh you know you were or had been planning to go back to turkey obviously the location is quite topical at the moment some of those countries that you've mentioned because of its proximity to ukraine do you know what the situation is for travel there and just now at the moment there's been no um official word is just kind of use common sense i guess and then it's very things are very much uh, changing um it, it, it's a shame because this is an ideal opportunity for them to really make a push because uh, one of my followers on instagram contacted me once he'd seen the reports that i was putting out from there and because he had younger children under 18 and there was such a, a mess at the time in terms of um, what rules to get into various countries he took a big gamble and he went to Palantikin with his family, uh, mum, dad and three children um, and recently returned only about last week. So he went for the, the, the school half term and he had an absolute ball. He said he's never had such great value for money. You know, as a family of five, the uh, two adults and three children, they were skiing uh, for the cost of two lift tickets in a normal resort in Western Europe. <laughs> They were all having their lift tickets, lunch, and all any breaks they wanted. You know, it was that uh, ratio of, of, yeah. of cost value. So, I love that. I love that thinking outside the box. Unfortunately, you know, it's always a, a similar issue. I seem to remember quite a few uh, years ago. I think Crystal maybe brochured uh, skiing in Lebanon just uh, at uh, the the wrong time uh, before it. You know, again, it became another destination that you couldn't uh, travel to. And you know, Katie mentioned before, just you know, in case any of these things change. You can always check that uh, FCO advice on the on the Battlefi uh, Battleface uh, website as well. That's brilliant, Mike. I think we could probably talk for ages about that, but that sounds fascinating. And put a whole bunch of uh, links into the show notes and uh, some of the pictures, if we're allowed any of them, ahead of uh, uh, full line uh, as well. Um, excellent. Thanks for sharing all of that with us. Uh, Katie? My kids have actually been skiing in Turkey, believe it or not. Their father flies for Turkish Airlines, and so he lives in Istanbul. And he took them skiing two years ago in, in Turks, just outside of Istanbul. And yeah. you're going to tell yeah. us that they had a great time while they were there. They had Katie. an amazing time. They absolutely loved it. Yeah, really fun. That is a really interesting and, you know, therefore probably prompted a few ideas uh, with people. OK, let's segue to somewhere that might be uh, more on people's uh, radar. Uh, last week, I spoke to Yvonne Rosenstatter from Salzburgland uh, Tourism Board. And the reason I spoke to her is I saw this story about a train that runs from Sweden to Zelamzay uh, Caprun. Uh, and it's kind of similar in some ways to the uh, new service by uh, Travel Ski. And I was really interested. So I tracked her down and we had a little chat about it. Okay, I'm here today with uh, Yvonne Rosenstatter, uh, and Yvonne is in charge of international markets at Salzburgerland uh, Tourism Board. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? How? Hi. Nice to meet you today. Thank you. I'm fine. Excellent. Um, the reason I wanted to speak to you is I don't really know how this came across my radar, but I was very interested to see that um, recently, I think about a month ago now, you ran a direct train from Malmo all the way in Sweden to, uh, to Zelamze. And it, 
I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, French market and how things are going, but this season, for the first time, there's a company called Travel Ski who restarted the direct train that goes all the way from London uh, to the French Alps. And I found this really interesting that this kind of idea is going on in the Austrian market and from Sweden as well. And I wondered if you could just tell me how that came about. Um, so how this came about, because since years, sustainable tourism development is for the Salzburgland very important. And already some years ago, we started our conversations with the operator of this train snow target from Sweden. And we wanted to get back a direct night train because we have direct night trains quite everywhere over Europe, but from Sweden, it's a main market for us, Sweden and Denmark, and we thought, why not getting a train back, starting sometimes already also in Stockholm, via Malmö, Copenhagen, to Salzburg, Austria, to Austria, and they have stops in Zellamsee, um, Bischofshofen, and Salzburg City. So this is very interesting for all skiers and to come on a sustainable possibility to Austria. And they have the choice, to, the choice between airplane, um, taking a car or by, by a nitrate with this train. Yeah, and, and I guess in Sweden uh, in itself, being the home of uh, uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, we know that there's a, a strong uh, kind of a sustainable movement and train movement uh, as well there. And in fact, there's a word that I came across because I don't know if you know, but I run a uh, campaign called Ski Flight Free. So actually encouraging people <laughs> to try and take the train. But um, I don't know if you've ever heard of, you probably have, I don't know about my pronunciation, Tagskirt. Do you know that word? No, no. Really. Well, it means it means in Swedish, um, it's a kind of opposite of um, fligskam, which is you know the yeah. shame, flight shame, etc. Yeah. And it means train bragging, and okay. it's about how you can talk about traveling by the train as a way of I don't know. Some people might call that um, you know like sort of a, a showing off or virtue signaling or something like that. But the fact <laughs> is that you can say, "Oh, well, I'm catching the train," uh, you know. And if you're going from Sweden, and this is out to specifically this train was to Kaprun Zelamze, wasn't it? And he also besides the city via Bischofshofen, yes. Yeah, and so you know, I find it really interesting. And and you know, is it who is actually chartering the train or running that train? So this train is 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 run by Snow Target. They are a, a Swedish uh, a Swedish based um, railway organization with a background in with German French background. Yeah. And um, even there have been some wholesalers which are selling ski holidays in Austria, which were interested and who already also were such as on an airplane. They bought allotments on this train for the train journey for our winter sport guests to Salzburgland and Austria. For British people who are interested in traveling to Austria by train, obviously something for Sweden isn't going to work for them. But in fact, there are more and more options. Uh, you know, without being able to go direct from the UK, I looked at the option before of catching the Eurostar mm -hmm. up to Amsterdam, yeah. and then that actually yeah. connects quite well yeah. with a service from Amsterdam, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, a that's right. There is a service from Amsterdam directly to Salzburgerland and even via Paris. So catch the Eurotrain, go to Paris, and from Paris the night train to to Salzburg City, and then you you can just jump and go there everywhere you want from Salzburg directly with yeah. the train to Excellent. the end station. 
And can I ask you, Vaughn, is this a, a kind of key part of how uh, Salzburger land is trying to market itself to make it more of a sustainable destination? Definitely, because nature was always very, um, very important for us. We already have an organic food production over 60%, in some villages over 80% in Salzburger land. We know how important the CO2 footprint is. Even we know it's often hard for our guests to arrive with, um, not arrive with a car or a plane. And so we focus to build up new corporations with sustainable sustainable traveling possibilities. And so for us, it's um, as we're not in the sea, we our only sustainable possibility we have is arriving by train um, and um, helping our guests to, to optimize the last footstep, even if they're arriving by air airlines, so that the final footstep is as as good from this perspective of CO2 footprint as possible. That's great. I look forward to hearing some more of the measures that you're uh, introducing. Certainly, you know, from my point of view, you know, it might be that uh, I tend to view things through rose-tinted glasses, but I think there's a big demand in the UK for people looking for more sustainable ways of traveling. But there's a limit on the supply. There's a limit on the ways that you can do it. So the more ways that you can do it, there are. Uh, the better it will be. So that's brilliant, uh, Yvonne. I'm going to put a link to all of that in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Bye. One of the advantages of travelling by train is there are no uh, ski carriage fees, which always uh, appeals. Uh, some people choose to uh, hire their skis and boots uh, anyway. Normally when I'm out on the Alps, I'm uh, getting something from Intersport Ski Hire. I like it because you can change your stuff because normally at some point during the week, I've got regular Alpine skis. some point, I've got ski touring uh, skis. But Al, I wanted to uh, bring you on board. Uh, you know, you're a, our equipment uh, expert. A lot of people who will be going out, they don't have their own boots and they'll be hiring boots and I think lots of people are kind of very worried about that because when they're in the shop they've obviously had their foot size checked how do you tell if the fit is right you know when is it that you should be asking for a, a larger size or a smaller size or even if you've got a pair and you're thinking all oh, these are a bit uncomfortable should you be changing after that what's your thoughts you know what this is a really good question because i've been boot fitting for 20 years or so and it's amazing that people aren't sure how a ski boot should fit when they put it on and this whether you're buying a boot whether you're going to hire a boot which is what you're referring to here the points are still relevant the first thing to know is we are all unique so what i want as a feel on my boot and the compression that I want around my foot might be quite different to you Ian and also that what I want in my piece boot for skiing really hard might be different to the fit that I want if I'm going to be touring that hopefully isn't going to confuse people but it's going to just allow you to get a good picture that there is no black and white in this we are all unique so the pressure that you like around your foot will be down to you specifically. Some people will like a lot of pressure around there if they've got a background in, in you know, maybe they're a rock climber and they used to really snug fitting boot or a snug fitting shoe because they're like a glove when you're climbing. My, my climbing shoes are about two sizes too small for me, but I like that compression on my foot and it's reflected in ski boots. But it certainly wants to feel snug is good is the way that I think about it. It's a good hold around the heel and forefoot, ankle and leg, but shouldn't be painful. Yeah, I think um shouldn't shouldn't be painful. I, mean, I, I think a lot of people maybe have it in mind that ski boots are just inherently uncomfortable and therefore 
they might sometimes think, well, okay, this is this is slightly painful, but I guess I'll just put up with it. And I think the other issue that you've got there is that your feet kind of change size during the course of the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do not be afraid of adjusting the boot through the day. You know, you, a ski boot is not necessarily something that you put on in the morning and then you don't touch all day. You know, if you've got a boot that you've invested a lot of time in and money to get fitted for yourself that you've bought because the fit on a bought boot, because of the time you can invest it can be more tailored than the fit on a higher boot, then yeah, you it might be that you set them at the start, start of the day and not have to adjust them at all now on a higher boot it's going to compress your foot through the day you know it's like it's like wearing a big cast isn't it really a compressive cast so when you wake up in the morning everything's a bit more kind of squidgy if you want you know a bit swollen from over the night it's relaxed then through the day you're doing sport your heart's pumping the blood and fluids moving around and it gets compressed so do adjust them but back to your original question when should you look at changing them so you the classic is somebody puts a ski boot on they say, oh, I've got loads of movement in the heel and they're trying to stand up on the toes. Now, that is not the position that we ski. And when you stand up on your toes, your heel changes shape. It gets a lot fatter. It's not as defined and the boot can't hold it. Even in a race boot, the snuggest race boot, if you push up on the, on the toes, you can get your heel to move. Don't use that as a sign that the boot fits or doesn't. Get in the ski position and then flex forward. It should be held around the forefoot. So it shouldn't be moving side to side and certainly shouldn't be loose. And in the heel, you should be able to feel at both sides of the heel and around your ankle bones, but it should not be painful anywhere. Another point that will really help the fit, when you get a higher boot, it might have a really flat footbed in there. The bottom of our foot is not flat. A boot doesn't bend. So get a supportive footbed. You can go to your local ski shop. You can buy an off-the-shelf, say a Superfeet, Superfeet Green, Superfeet Blue, and take that with you when you go and get your high boots fitted. Also take your ski sock because then you're going to be getting fitted exactly how you're going to be skiing. Modern high boots are way better than they were five, 10 years ago. And you've raised this a few times. Intersport have a great fit system to ensure that they're going to get you in the best fit for your skiing, for your foot. And listen to them. They're experts. They fit thousands of people with this all through the winter. They do know what they're doing. But if you aren't sure if it's right once you've been skiing, do not be afraid to go back and then just talk to them about it. It could be they just need to adjust that boot or they get you in a different model. Cool. I think that's really helpful, particularly, you know, what you should be doing, because I think maybe like a lot of more experienced listeners might be very confident about it. But I think a lot of people, when they put their boots on in the shop, they're not really too sure what to do. So that advice there is really useful. I think as well, it's worth pointing out that some people, you know, often turn up to the resort on a Saturday and then go and get their uh, their higher uh, equipment before skiing on the Sunday. So what you're saying there is very important to make sure that you take the socks you're actually going to be using along with you. And also you need to consider like what you're wearing at the time. If you're in jeans or leggings or something like that, going to be different from what you're wearing when you're skiing. You need to take that into account when you're trying them on. Well, more about can you pull the jeans up over the ski boot? And if you're the, so I always wear a three quarter long john. I don't like anything in my boot apart from my foot, my footbed and my sock. That is me. I don't want any other seams in there. If you are the kind of person that wears your long john into your boot, that's going to affect the fit. You might not think it, but changing ski socks really impacts the fit of the boots. So make sure that when you're trying them on in the higher shop, apply the same you know, principles that you would if you're going to buy. Take your footbed. You really need some support under the foot. 
because it needs it. You'll get way more comfort, more warmth, more power. Take the ski socks that you're going to be skiing in because it all impacts the fit. And what's something that's really relevant and you see a lot is people go, oh, but I'm a size nine. Why is that a size eight ski boot? Casual shoes and ski boot sizes, there is almost no relation. Ignore it. They are precision fitting piece of footwear for a ski boot. And it's done in Mondo Point, which is a centimeter so length of your foot. So don't go, oh, I'm a size 13 shoe. Why am I an 11 ski boot? Don't, don't try and match them up like that. That's not how it works. Yeah, I think you have to trust the uh, the fitter in the shop. I know it can be uh, frustrating, but that's really good. That's really good advice. And I thought, you know, another advantage of actually uh, hiring them during the week, uh, and I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but InSport will let you uh, try and then buy uh, like a new item, not the ones uh, that you've actually used during the week at the end of the week as well. And, and just at this point, I might uh, chip in. We may have discussed this before on the pod, but uh, between now and our next podcast, Al, you're going to be going out and testing a huge amount of kit, I think, aren't you? Yeah, so tonight I drive out through various countries in, in, in Europe to go to Austria. So there's an organisation called the Snowsport Industries of Great Britain. And this represents the trade and travel and, and media in the UK in snow sports. They organise a ski test and the vast majority of brands attend. So I will go out and ski products. So boots and skis primarily, but looking at accessories, helmets, footbeds, goggles, many things around snow sports and have it sounds fun and don't get me wrong it's great you get to go and ski a little kit but to get through 40 50 60 pairs of skis plus boots plus other things in four and a half days it's quite intense so yeah we'll bring you the lowdown from that on our, on the next pod well that'll be in episode uh, 91 and we'll try and compress all of that into a uh, conversation that will fit into the podcast let's move on to the uh, paralympics uh, I mentioned Millie Knight. Uh, she wasn't able to join us uh, today because she is out in uh, Beijing at the moment. Uh, Millie Knight is uh, definitely one of our great chances uh, for a medal. She won two silvers in Pyeongchang and a bronze uh, in the most recent uh, Worlds. Uh, she won a gold and a bronze. So let's have a listen to that conversation. You've got about a month to go until the uh, Paralympics, haven't you? We do indeed. It's fast approaching. Yeah. When will you be going out there then? Uh, so we fly out on the 25th of February. So I'm in isolation just now whilst I'm at home. Um, and then we have a holding camp out in Austria um, beforehand where we'll obviously be testing all the time. So we enter the sort of the games bubble. Um, and then we have to isolate in Paris for two days before we fly. Well, I wish you all the best with that. I, I was doing a little bit of research prior to us meeting just now. I love the quote that I read uh, somewhere where it says, uh, I ski with my ears, which might yeah. sound uh, weird to uh, some people. But, um, you know, I think by now, uh, podcast listeners will know that you're uh, visually impaired. Do you want to kind of just elaborate on what you mean by I ski with my ears? Well, obviously, because I'm one sense down, um, my other senses are significantly heightened. I communicate with Brett through um, Bluetooth headsets in our helmets. Um, so obviously Brett's guiding me down the hill. He'll tell me whatever's going on um, that he deems important. So whether the snow conditions have changed, whether the terrain is uh, flat, steep, changing, rolling, um, whether there's changes in the course, vertically, hairpin, delay, you know, like all sorts of things. Um, and uh, usually tactical and technical focuses too. Um, and then I will say back whether I can still see him, whether I can't, I need to speed up, slow down, 
whether I'm on at each gate, off at each gate, and yeah, like all of that communication happens within a fraction of a second. And I can gain a lot of uh, information from the sound of his skis as well. Um, so I can tell what the snow texture is like based on the sounds. Um, and then Brett can also hear how confident I am by the sound of my voice and the way that I breathe. <laughs> right. I mean, that makes sense because, you know, when I ski, certainly you develop a feeling uh, for snow and you feel that through your skis perhaps more than how you observe it uh, with your eyes. I mean, obviously, your relationship with Brett is fundamental to your uh, ability to uh, race. And you've been with him since 2017. Yeah, obviously, the guide-athlete relationship is critical. Um, if, that's, if that's not good, then the VI is likely to have confidence issues, lack of trust, um, and therefore performance won't be there. Obviously, my relationship with Brett is, is special, for sure. It's... it's something we've worked very hard on over the last six years yeah I think we probably do have one of the, the best partnerships um you know there are a couple of uh, partnerships that are uh, siblings and, and obviously they're significantly closer um, but yeah I'm, I'm very fortunate to have Brett. when you started off your uh, your mum was your uh, your guide right I, I could I could see how it's good to have a little bit of distance, perhaps, uh, sometimes, <laughs> you know, knowing what it's like when I, for example, tried to teach my kids how to ski, uh, you need to be able to separate those things. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about how it works, because a lot of people who maybe have never uh, seen you or a uh, visually impaired Paralympian in action might not uh, get how it works. If I'm correct in saying that Brett will ski in front of you, so he'll be taking almost... If, for example, you're in slalom, the gate in front while you're one gate behind, that must yeah. be very hard. I, I get you, there's a rhythm in slalom, but if he's yeah. describing it, he's describing the gate that's one ahead of where you are already, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So when Brett first came into the sport, he was like, whoa, this is so weird. Because obviously skiing is a very individual sport. Um, in a in a fizz race, you would never have more than one person on the course at once. Um, and then all of a sudden, in our races, you've now got two people within three metres of each other travelling at 120 kilometres an hour. Um, so it is something that you have to be certainly on the ball with. Brett has to get the timings right of his commands. That's something that obviously comes second nature to him now, but was pretty challenging initially. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, in fact, you talking about his ability to communicate being so mm -hmm. fundamental. I know he uh, is from the Royal Navy and is currently kind of on release to work with you. And I also read that uh, I think he is a submariner and part of his uh, job, submariner, I should say, and part <laughs> of his job uh, was to you know give commands to the hel helmsman. So he's very used to kind of giving the, those very clear directional uh, demands so really almost a perfect fit for the role that he's playing with you now absolutely there's the skills that he learns in in the royal navy um there's, there's a lot of crossovers in in those skills yeah like you say when he's on the planes he has to be very very clear very very confident um with his communications like he does with me you know there can't be any doubt there can't be any hesitation he has to just say it and I have to understand and listen. <laughs> yeah, well, it obviously uh, must be working because you got together in 2016, Pyeongchang in 2018, 
Uh, there were a couple of silvers and a bronze medal. And I should point out as well to listeners that you don't just compete in slalom, which we mentioned now, but super G and downhill as well, which is where you're getting those uh, speeds of up to 115 kilometers per hour, per hour is it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you've wiped out at that speed as well, yeah, haven't you? I landed on my face at that point, yeah. But you're working together and then um, last year in the World Championships, you got a, a gold in the combined and a, a bronze uh, as well. So that partnership is obviously working well and you're uh, progressing. It may seem like a, a kind of a, a banal question, but what are your aspirations for Beijing then? Yeah, so we, Bryce and I have had some pretty pretty cool results together over the last couple of years, um, being world champions twice, overall World Cup globes and World Cup races and Europe Cup races and all sorts of things. Like we have had successes, which has been amazing. But I think in recent times, we have been realistic with where we might place at the Paralympic Games. Um, it's not a, a medal target that we're going for. It's a very much performance outcome. And, and process related um, so that way we don't put pressure on ourselves nobody expects anything from us um, and we can just purely focus on the performance yeah well that sounds like the uh, the approach you know I've been lucky enough to speak to you know quite a lot of athletes uh, you know in my role and ultimately you can't control what everyone else does you can only control right. what you do can't you so that's the yeah. thing to focus on isn't it I wish you the best for the games itself I was very interested again when I was doing a little bit of research that um what kind of moved you towards uh, competing in Paralympic uh, events to start off with was a meeting with Sean Rose at the uh, London Ski Show. And I've met Sean on a number of occasions. And in my previous uh, uh, kind of you know, role when I was uh, running a website called natives.co.uk, we used to raise money for Disability Snow Sport UK and Sean would come along to uh, a number of our events. And uh, I'm wondering how you met him and what he kind of said to you at that time. I was, you know, I was just a sort of a skier at that point. I just went on family holidays with my mum and uh, I loved it. Obviously, it was it was a massive passion of mine. Um, and then we went to the London Ski Show in 2010. He'd just come back from the Paralympic Games in Vancouver. It was the first time that I'd ever met a para-athlete like me. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was just telling me about his experiences in, in Vancouver and and how to get into the sport. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. You're so cool. This sport's amazing. I want to get involved with this. Great. Well, you know, I um, really enjoyed uh, my time with Sean. I've enjoyed chatting to you now, uh, Millie, and I'd like to wish you and Brett uh, all the best for Beijing when you go out there. Have a great time and uh, stick to the process and we'll follow how you get on. Thank you very much. Thanks. So we wish uh, Millie and Brett all the best uh, for uh, Beijing and all of our athletes uh, out there. Let's um, come back to the uh, Olympics from the uh, Paralympics. Um, I saw Dave Riding picked up a second in Garmisch. Now, he has had an amazing ski season. Now, he obviously uh, won his first uh, World Cup race. Uh, this is his fifth podium, a uh, World Cup podium, I think. And he's currently fourth in the World Cup overall for this season. So he hasn't had an amazing season. It didn't work out for him at, at Beijing. Uh, he he went for it. You can't win every race. But um, we obviously came out of Beijing, I say we being Team GB, with, you know, a disappointing uh, result. There were no medals for any of the skiers and snowboarders. Um, I think there was a target of kind of three to five. Certainly there'd been one in Sochi, two in Pyeongchang. So looking at three. Uh, and, you know, previously, uh, GB Snowsport had announced uh, an intention to be a top five 
a ski and snowboarder nation by 2030. Now, I had a look at the medals table, and that would mean six, seven, maybe eight medals to uh, to get to that position. You know, I'm interested. Does it matter if Team GB didn't win any uh, medals? I was listening to another podcast. You know, they, they had an investment of uh, over nine, ten million pounds. Uh, another podcast where they said, well, we just we, we don't need medals. We just pay that money to be entertained. But I think probably we could have been entertained by the Olympics without necessarily seeing the uh, the GB uh, skiers and snowboarders. Anyone on the podcast today have an opinion on that, Mike? I think if we don't have any representation and certainly don't have a broad representation in as many events as possible, then most people won't watch it. So, you know, having a, a, a competitor from your own country, whether that's Scotland, England, Northern Ireland or Wales representing GB, um, I think that gives you an in, which you wouldn't necessarily have unless you were a diehard uh, follower and um, of, of winter sports. So the money side of things, it, it isn't a, a linear relationship of you put X amount in and your return is going to be Y. And I think because of the the COVID situation where lots of our athletes couldn't travel to the the training centers, then I think we'll see a springboard for the following games where they'll have an opportunity where they've had a chance to compete. They see what the levels are, especially the younger competitors, you know, very young competitors. They see what what the the situation of travel, sleeping in a, um, a very controlled environment, being on a team, you know, it's a very structured uh, lifestyle, which perhaps they don't have as much when they're in their day-to-day training uh, situations. Sure. I mean, I think the point about COVID interrupting things is uh, is a factor for sure. And it's probably affected the uh, British team significantly more than people from other uh, nations. I interviewed uh, Dave Riding during lockdown one. And, you know, he, he was miles away from the mountains. Some of his uh, Austrian competitors were actually on the glacier you know, uh, uh, skiing and practicing uh, with gates. So there is a significant, uh, you know, disadvantage uh, there. Um, Al, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I can see why people may be disappointed by the medals tally that we had. We weren't the only country to come out of it disappointed. Some massive skiing nations were the same. The conditions were really challenging. They're not necessarily what the skiers and the technicians, because we have to get... The, you know, the preparation of the skis is really, really critical, critical at this level of, of, of racing, of freestyle, of all sorts of things. You know, you, you spoke about the whole Prada issue with the snowboard and that impacted how that snowboard performed because then it couldn't ride in the same way. Um, I was amazed by how we, what we did. You know, if we look at slope style, if we look at what the girls were doing, it was, yes, it was entertaining, but it's amazing. It's world class. And the money that goes into that, side of sport is not just about the olympics it's about how we do at world cup level but think of all of the people that got inspired from the olympics from watching that mike you're totally right it's a springboard for what we're going to see in future generations but do not let that belittle the effort that's gone in so far it is amazing and 2030 is the goal not 2022 in terms of where we want to be from a competitive nation Mm, I mean, it does seem they're actually reining uh, back on that uh, idea of being a top uh, five ski or snow sport nation. I think that that was um, something put down by Dan Hunt, the performance director, and Vicky Gosling, who's the CEO of uh, GB Snow Sport, uh, made a number of comments uh, during the course of the Olympics to suggest that maybe that wasn't 
the absolute goal. You're talking about people being inspired, Al, but I think one of the points of trying to get medalists is that that is really what breaks through. There's a lot of people who, you know, either didn't know the Winter Olympics were going on or certainly didn't watch it because they weren't particularly interested. It's just on their periphery, whereas a medal winner makes all the difference. And, uh, you know, some people will know that when Jenny Jones won her medal, you know, Hemel Hempstead had their busiest day ever when she turned up and she was, uh, you know, available to talk to people. There were, you know, queues of people out the door to uh, see her on that occasion. And there was a real boost you know, following uh, uh, that. And without those medals this time round, it won't necessarily affect the flow of people through. But, you know, talent identification is important. But we talk about the flow of people into skiing as a whole. The more people who take up skiing, I know that they're looking to try and find people from other sports and pick people up from gymnastics or this or that where they have similar skills. But the more people who go skiing, the higher the chances are in the future of finding talent. Absolutely right. And that is important from a competitive side. But I think you can look at this in a much more holistic manner. So anybody that gets inspired by the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and then gets into snow sport is a great thing for snow sports as a whole. You know, it benefits all of us that work in it. Thing. And if the Olympics inspire somebody to go out to the mountains and do it, fantastic. Yes, if we got more medals, I don't doubt that more people would have got into it. But it's all a benefit. Okay, well, uh, you know, we're clearly not going to be able to answer that uh, uh, that question within kind of five minutes or however long we've been talking about this. You could possibly spend uh, nine million pounds on bringing people into the industry, getting more people to take school trips overseas or getting them to go to indoor centres and, you know, have an impact uh, uh, like that. There's evidently a, a lot of young talent uh, out there as well. Kirsty Muir, she's only 17. She certainly, uh, injuries uh, notwithstanding, has a great chance. And the other person I remembered is Mia Brooks, who is a great talent for the future as well, who's also, uh, you know, very young wasn't even at the Olympics this time round. Almost certainly will be the next time round. Let's move to the close now. Reviews, comments are always welcome wherever you want to leave them. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, social media or email. Doug, I'd like to thank. He bought me a coffee and also Nick D bought me a coffee. He said great work. Best ski podcast. Talking of which, we're still in the running for the best winter sports uh, podcast in the Sports Podcast Awards. You're very welcome to vote for us. I'll put a link in the show notes. And some good news, listeners. Stickers are back. I now have uh, more ski podcast stickers, which you're welcome to put on your helmet or your skis or put them anywhere uh, with a bit of guerrilla marketing uh, around the outs. We had a Instagram post the other day where someone took a photo of, uh, I think, a, a lamppost in Chamonix, which happened to have one of our stickers on that may or may not have been placed by me uh, back in last summer. Uh, so I enjoy all feedback about the show. Please do email. You can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the Ski Podcast. But for now, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today, Mike. My absolute pleasure. Look forward to coming back on in the very near future. We love having you on, Mike, and thanks for sharing all of that today. Katie? Thanks for having me as always, Ian. Thank you, Katie and Al. Thank you, Ian. It's been fun. Excellent. So finally, listener, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>